turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Just finished a book called The Nazi and the Psychiatrist. And it's a true story of a man named Douglas Kelly, who was an officer in the U.S. Army during World War II, but he was a psychologist by trade. And after the war was over, when the Allies had gathered up all of the Nazi leaders and had put them in this prison in Nuremberg where they were going to await trial um, as, as war criminals, they assigned Douglas Kelly to be their institutional psychologist, their medical doctor. And he was to oversee their mental health and their physical health and to make sure they were competent to stand trial. And as he entered that assignment, he had a particular agenda that he wanted to flesh out. He wanted to find out what is it that makes these men tick. These 22 men who were the ones on trial represent some of the most evil atrocities ever committed in the history of the world. And his assumption was that there was going to be something that linked them, some sort of psychological anomaly, some sort of criminally insane gene that sort of implanted itself, that these were a deeply disturbed, psychologically crazy group of men. That's how we can explain what they did. But interestingly, as he began this study and and hundreds of hours and many, many months, and as he did interviews and made them take psychological tests, and he got to know them personally, he came slowly but surely to this conclusion. And it's his conclusion, which is radically, um, you know, it it is radically disputed. People, People read it, they shake their heads, they can't believe it. But Dr. Kelly's conclusion ultimately was that these men actually weren't that different than you and me. They were, they were pretty normally adjusted. Now, granted, there was plenty of narcissism and ambition and selfishness and those illusions of grandeur. But his conclusion was that any one of us put in the similar circumstance could do the same thing. Not that we would do the same thing, but that we could do the same thing. And, and people of his day, people of our day, just sort of shut our ears to that because we understand the massive implications of what he's saying. That maybe there's not much to really distinguish us from them. Maybe we all are in the same boat. And that's Paul's point at this section in Romans chapter 1. He is going to spend the next three chapters trying to make an airtight case. And the airtight case is simply this, that not just criminally insane people, not just Nazis, not just the worst of our society, but in fact, all of us stand under the very judgment and wrath of God. So if Dr. Kelly's conclusions sort of infuriate you, you have not seen anything yet in Romans 1, right? It, it might as well have been the appendix to his study. Like, see Romans 1 as a backup to what I'm saying here. But we're going to need some courage this morning, poor Oaks. And the courage is not to turn away from the text. But the, we need the courage to see ourselves in it. And in seeing ourselves in it, we will find a pathway to Jesus himself. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So if you can, willing, able, invite you to stand. We're going to read Romans 1, 18 through 25. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard text, but yet it is your text. It's what you've put here at this time and this day. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to receive everything that you have for us in it. And Father, as we come face to face with the darkness in our own hearts, Lord, let us, let this text lead us back to you, back to Jesus, back to the only one who can truly remedy this horrible situation we find ourselves in. And Lord, in doing that, let us find hope, hope in the gospel of grace. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Three points this morning, pretty straightforward. Number one, we just want to ask, what is Paul saying? What's his essential argument? What's he trying to impress upon us? So what is Paul saying? Number two, why is he saying it? And number three, how do we apply it to ourselves? So let's jump right in verse 18. What is Paul saying? The very first thing, isn't this interesting, after his sort of preliminary remarks and talking about the gospel, Paul goes right there, right to the heart of it. He throws the spiritual gauntlet down in verse 18, and he tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. And that word revealed means to uncover or to unveil. In other words, there is a sense in which the wrath of God is being shown in a new way, right? Once Jesus has come on the scene, and we're going to come back to that in just a second. But it's interesting, I want, to, I want to point this out to you. If you look back at verse 17, where Pastor Scott preached from last week, the phrase, the wrath of God is revealed, exactly parallels the phraseology in 117, where it says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So on one hand, Paul tells us there is a righteousness of God that's revealed by faith through Jesus Christ, while at the same time, there's a parallel reality where the righteousness of God is being poured out or his wrath is being poured out against all unrighteousness. And in fact, he says, this wrath is being made now at this very moment known. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the word wrath can actually be interpreted either anger or hostility. So the anger of God or the hostility of God or the, or the wrath of God is being poured out on unrighteousness. And Kit Hughes, in his exposition of this text, notes there are actually two Greek words for the word anger or wrath. There's the first one, which is thumos, where we get our term thermometer. 
It literally means red hot anger, an anger that is spontaneous and impassioned and impulsive. Some, the kind of anger we might say, you know, he really flew off the handle, or we went berserk, or dad lost it when that guy got his parking space in front of him, right? That, that sort of thing, like just that spontaneous, impulsive, just off the handle sort of anger. That's not the word for anger here. That's not the one that Paul uses. The one that Paul uses is orge. It means an anger that is calculated, controlled, definite, and not impulsive, but in fact, well thought out. And Paul is using that term to describe the reality that wrath is God's settled opposition to all sin, and justly so in light of his holiness and righteousness. It is significant, I think, that wrath is the very first thing that Paul introduces us to here. Paul is going to spend the next three chapters talking about this and why this is so, so important, church, for us to get a handle on, for us to get an accurate self-assessment, not of just the world, but in fact of our self. It's going to be the controlling theme over our next several weeks in Romans. We won't understand the book. We won't understand the gospel that Paul gets to in chapter 3 unless we understand really the situation that we find ourselves in. Unless you think, by the way, that wrath is a peripheral thing in the book of Romans, Paul mentions it 10 different times. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Romans 2. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up, here it is, wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we now have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. But understand something, church. Wrath is not just a Pauline thing. Because it's very tempting to say, well, well we know Paul. I mean, he was crazy and, you know, he, he was out of his mind when he's writing this stuff. And he's an angry person. This is not just a Paul thing, it's also a Peter thing, it's also a James thing, but even more than that, it's also a Jesus thing. And this is, I'm going to say just a a little something about this, but we'll revisit it in our pastoral devotionals. But Jesus actually had quite a lot to say about the wrath of God. One of the most famous love texts in all of scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not, what? Perish. It means die to decay, but have everlasting life. In fact, John goes on in that same passage, in that same John 3, 16 passage to tell us this in John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the what? Wrath of God remains on him. Now, let me note a couple of things about this, about this idea and why wrath is such a prominent theme here for Paul right off the top. Two things I want you to know. First, Paul seems to indicate that there is an innate knowledge of God imprinted on every soul that's ever lived in the history of mankind. That every person, religious or non-religious, every person, rich or poor, every person, whatever era you were born in, however you grew up, that deep down within the recesses of your soul, is a knowledge that 
this is all here, not by accident. And the way that God makes this knowledge known, look back at the text, it says, it is clearly perceived by the world that he's made, by the creation that he has put in order. So some of you, if you go on a family trip out west and go visit the Grand Canyon, you don't sit there and marvel and say, wow, what an amazing thing that happened by the random product of chance. Wow, what a cool thing that just kind of spontaneously made itself known. You, you, don't, you don't go to the most beautiful sites in the world. You don't wake up in the Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee and look out and not say, this is amazing, this is beautiful. This is part of God's creation. You can't look at a genome under a microscope. I don't even know if you can look at a genome under a microscope, but you get what I'm saying. You can't look at the DNA sequence and not come away with a, with a, with a belief that there are trillions of infinite possibilities. None of us are the same. And no emails about identical twins. We understand what's involved there, right? But none of us, just with a casual glance, can come to any other conclusion but that we, we are not all there is. There is something greater and more majestic and glorious out there than anything we could ever conjure up for ourselves. And that is a knowledge, Paul says, that is screaming to us, that is shouting to us, but there's a problem. Hey, look back at the text for a second. This truth is being proclaimed, yet at the same time, what are we doing? We're trying to hold it down. We're trying to hold it under the water. Last weekend, I was in Chattanooga, and my son Jack and I, I was driving him around Eastridge, Tennessee, showing him the old glory days from 35 years ago. And I had built it up in my mind. There's the Eastridge swimming pool, and it's where we got on our bikes in 1977 and after and rode down and, like, swam all day, and parents didn't know where we are, didn't want to know where we are, and we came back at home at night. And I just remember all the great memories from this pool. And so as we're pulling around the corner, I'm like, Jack, you're going to love this. It is the most amazing thing. And guess what had happened? They had paved paradise and put up a Walmart. Okay, literally. (laughs) It was so discouraging. But nonetheless, we played a game in those days. And this is the kind of game they let you play in the 70s that you could never get away with now. You'd totally get arrested. But it was basically called sneak up on your friend. Get your hands and put them on the top of his head, press down, hold him underwater, and see how long you could do that before the lifeguard blew the whistle. It was an awesome game, okay? It was an awesome game. That's the word for suppress. It means to hold something down with great resistance. It means to fight against the energy of something that wants to reveal itself, but you're wanting to keep it down here. And Paul says that's what every one of us who is born in the history of planet Earth does. We have sophisticated ways of doing it as compared to the pagans. We, we have nifty ways and, and we, call, we call them various things, but nonetheless, in the very core of our being, even though there is an innate knowledge of God that's displayed to everyone, we want to get around it. And by the way, it's not just the atheist that wants to do this, right? In fact, I, can think of, I actually think a good argument could be made that there is no such thing as atheism. And by that, I don't mean that there's not a philosophical position called atheism, and that guys like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchings write books and create societies. It does, I, don't, I know that there is. But what I mean, I think Paul seems to indicate that even at the end of the day, 
when those who try so hard to deny the existence of God and the accountability that that would entail if he is actually real, that deep, deep, deep in their recesses, when they are lying on their deathbed, they know something is beyond them. And so Paul says, this is what we do. We, we press down. We, this knowledge that's trying to break itself out. We are, we're, and by the way, guys, it's not, it's not just atheists, right? A lot of us are functional atheists, or at least functional deists. We have no problem acknowledging God, but when God's truth wants to rear its head and speak into different areas of our life, we're what? We're suppressing it. We're holding it down. We know it can't last forever, right? We, we know at some point God's going to have his way, but we're resisting it all that we can. But Kit Hughes notes that it's not just that we suppress it. Okay, look back at the text. We also pervert it. And this is a, a fancier end run around this idea of atheism. This doesn't deny God, you know, conceptually or philosophically. This just denies God practically. So look at verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. What is Paul saying here? Paul's saying that no matter how hard you try to suppress it, the knowledge of God will work itself out in your life in some way. You see, all of us, all of humanity in the history of humanity were designed to worship God. We were designed to worship something greater than ourselves. But if we displace God and put him to the side, you and I, we will instinctively, naturally gravitate to something to fill that hole. That's how we are wired. That's how we are made. That's why, that's why Louis Giglio says, worship is not what Christians do. Worship is what people do. Worship is what we are designed to do. And if it's not of the, of the creator, it will be something in the, in the creation. And we're really good at this, aren't we? We displace God for wealth or sex or material possessions or career. Or on the northeast side of Killarn here, we, we, we gussy it up and make it focus on the family or our children and live our lives vicariously through them. Our leisure, our hobbies, our acceptance. Guys, I don't ask you if you do it because we all do. I ask you to think about what is it that that thing serves as the functional idol or savior in your life. That's what you worship. By the way, this worship of self or this worship of things other than God can also take on a theological dimension. And it happens oftentimes by people deciding a priori, independent of God's word, what they will and they, what they won't believe about God. And it comes across in things like this. Well, Pastor Paul, I could never worship a God like that. I, I, you talk about wrath and justice and, and I'm, I'm about love and mercy and if that's the God you're talking about, I can't worship him. Do you see what we've done there? We've elevated our own status and reason and intellect above the very word of God. And I'm going to revisit this this week in one of the devotionals. 
But this is exactly what progressive liberal theology does. If you want to know at the end of the day why some are so, why the idea of a sacrificial atonement, a blood shed by Jesus to pay the penalty for sinners, why that's so repugnant to some people is because it really gets at this heart of this idea of wrath and of righteousness and the knowledge that we know that we have deep within, not only that God exists, but that we are accountable to him. And this can manifest itself in a multitude of soul-crushing ways, by the way. And next week, we're going to talk about one of the ways that mankind has slipped out from his accountability and our accountability to the creator God is through our sexuality. That'll be next week. But for now, what we want to say is that we all operate in the realm of idols. It's what we were created to be. It's what we're created to do. And if it's not God, it will be something else. What is it for you? What is it for you? What is it for me? Now, when it says that God's wrath is revealed, that's actually in the present tense. It's it's an active participle. It means God's wrath is being revealed. Now, this is important because what Paul is talking about here is not the ultimate future eschatological judgment of wrath that will come when Jesus comes back and raises the dead and will judge everyone. Paul says that's true, and he's going to talk about it in Romans, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul is talking about here is a wrath that is being revealed at this very moment. And we may say, how is this wrath being revealed at this very moment? There's several answers to that, but let me give you the one Paul gives here in verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them up. Now that word literally means to hand over, to surrender, to leave someone to their own accord. You see, man is totally depraved. But by that, we don't mean, please understand this, that man is as evil as he possibly could be. Total depravity just means that all of our beings and self are contaminated by sin. There's not one area of your life, in my life, that's not contaminated by sin, whether it's mental, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, all of it. But at the same time, we are not as wicked as we possibly can be, and why why is that? Well, it's because God has made us in his image. And through his providence and his sovereignty, he controls evil. He keeps evil tamped down. By his common grace, God restricts evil. Now, and he does this, by the way, not just for the Christian, but for the non-Christian as well. It's like when it's been raining all this week. It's not like the rain is falling on your yard, but not your neighbor's yard who doesn't know Christ, right? Rain falls on the just and the unjust. God's common grace is just that. It's common to everyone. And it's by virtue of his common grace that we can live and eat and breathe and sleep and recreate and go places and enjoy family. God has given to marry, to have children. All of these are common grace blessings given to us by God. But Paul says, here's what happens as God begins to bring judgment in this life. He says he just begins to lift his restraining hand. He just begins to say, if you want your own way that much, let me just take a step back and let's see what happens. Guys, it's a terrifying thing 
to be left alone by God. See, right now, some of you, there's things going on in your life that are just slamming against your heart, your soul, your mind. You're like, I just wish God would leave me alone about this. But don't you see, that's his grace. What, what is not his grace, what would be his judgment, is for you to stop feeling that. And this is what Paul is talking about here. As John Stott says, God abandoned stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness. And guys, we see this in our culture, do we not? I believe what we see in the West are a people with a knowledge of God, peripherally, on a surface level, but people who deny functionally his very existence. See, what we have to understand, please, freedom without gospel, freedom without the restraining hand and common grace of God just doesn't work. What doesn't work is when God says, you want to be on your own that much, then my present judgment upon you is that I just give you what you ask for. This is what John Stott says about this in summary. He says, it is, he's talking about wrath. He says, it is God's settled and perfectly righteous opposition to evil. It is directed against people who have some knowledge of God's truth through the created order, but deliberately suppress it in order to pursue their own self-centered path. And it is already being revealed in a preliminary way in the moral and social corruption which Paul saw in much of the Greco-Roman world of his time, and which we can see in our own day too. That, in essence, I think is what Paul is saying. Now, secondly, we'll spend less time on this, why is he saying it? Or let me put it a different way. Why is Paul talking about this right now? Why at this point in the letter? Why doesn't Paul just go to Romans, end of Romans 3 and Romans 4? That is some good stuff. That is some gospel. That is some, some a proclamation and an exposition Paul gives of the death of Christ and how his righteousness becomes ours and how our sin becomes his. And it's a glorious section, one of the most glorious in all of Scripture. But why does Paul spend two and a half chapters on this? That's the question. Because it's not what we would expect, right? Paul's just given us this introduction, talks about this righteousness of God, this good news of the gospel. But then he goes straight to sort of this psychological horror movie. And by the way, many have, in fact, questioned that. And it definitely goes against the preaching advice, right, of many in the prosperity movement who say, you know what, Pastor Paul, people heard enough about sin. My goodness, they've heard so much about sin. They don't need to hear more. They know they're broken. They know they're messed up. They know they make mistakes. What they really need to hear, they need to be liberated to think good thoughts, happy thoughts, positive thoughts, Jesus thoughts. So we don't spend time. Don't spend time. People won't, people won't come to hear this. People, people do not want to hear. They want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. This is the sort of the, the prevalent theology oftentimes in the church but here's the fatal error of that type of thinking. Please hear this. Please hear this. The good news of the gospel is only good news if you know the bad news about yourself. If you don't think anything is really wrong with you. In other words, I mean, not everybody's perfect, Pastor Paul, and, and everybody makes mistakes, and I have low self-esteem. If, if that's the the the, the, the 
the depth of diagnosis that you bring to your own soul, then guess what? Jesus will become a therapist for you. Or he'll become a buddy. Or he'll be your co-pilot. Or he's someone who helps manage your finances better. But the one thing he won't be, he won't be your savior. See, our biggest problems, and this is something I think we need to hear culturally right now. We need to hear culturally right now. Our biggest problems are not sociological or political or cultural or economical or medical. Those are not our biggest problems. Our biggest problem is a moral one. It is a spiritual one. And all other problems come from this root. And it doesn't mean we don't need to spend time looking at those problems and applying the truth of the gospel. But if we don't get the diagnosis right, the prescription will be all wrong. This was God's word to his Old Testament prophets, right? You speak peace, peace to your people. But he says, shepherds of Israel, I will scatter you. You should be bringing the news, the true news, because it is only at that point that people realize their desperate plight and turn to the only place of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is endeavoring to do for all of us. He is wanting to bring us to that place where we, in accurately seeing ourselves, we may most clearly see our only solution. So that brings us to the last point, and there's three little takeaways I want to give to you, building off of this. How do we apply it? We apply it by looking first in the mirror, and what is the mirror? Look at James 1. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Some of you, when you look in the mirror, you do need to turn away, right? You forget what you like. Absolutely. That's not what Paul's talking about. The mirror is the word of God. And Paul says, number one, listen to this, Christian, look at yourself. Look at yourself and don't turn away. Look at yourself and be very honest. Because an accurate self-assessment is the first, and it is the necessary step to get to the gospel. See, if your self-assessment is that you are doing all right, I mean, not the greatest, I give myself a B plus, right? That, that, that sort of level of spirituality. Then Jesus might be a nice accessory to your life, but he will not be your savior. He will not be necessary. And so number one, Christian, take inventory from Romans 1. Number two, After looking at yourself, look at others. Now, when I say look at others, I don't mean look at others in judgment. I mean, you can always tell those people who have the most accurate assessment of their own sinful nature. Why? How do you know? Because they are so kind to other people. They are so gentle. They are so compassionate Oftentimes, if we see ourselves becoming angry at someone, self-righteously angry, and we're in the middle of division and conflict and turmoil within our own hearts, it's probably an indication that we have forgotten who we are. But see, when we come to the place of accurately seeing ourselves, then when we look at others, we see 
image bearers made in the image of God who struggle with sin just like we do. Guys, this, to, to, to accurately understand yourself and other people, because it will be totally freeing in your relationships. You see, sometimes relationships aren't meant to bear the weight and the freight of authority that we give them, right? Sometimes we, it is so important for us that people in our relationships meet our expectations. And when they don't meet our expectations, we grind them down. Do you know what that's like in relationships? Everybody feels like they're disappointing you. Paul says, when we look at others, we stop making little idols of them and expecting them to do things that they weren't designed to do. But when we accurately see ourselves, oh, God uses that to pour out compassion and mercy and kindness towards those fellow strugglers to say, not, thank you, Lord, I'm not like him, but Lord, I am a sinner. I am fallen and I am fallible. Lord, please help me. Last thing, look at yourself, look at others, but oh, church, most importantly, look at Jesus. Please understand something. When when Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed or poured out or manifested, it's not as if wrath is poured out and it comes to Jesus and makes a U-turn, like Jesus deflects that wrath from you. It's certainly true. He does direct the wrath away from you, but that wrath has to go somewhere. See, when an infinite God is sinned against infinitely, there are infinite consequences, are there not? And so something, the wrath has to go somewhere. But the wrath, God says, isn't just directed away from you. It's poured out on my own son. See, it's Jesus that absorbed the wrath of his father. This is what it means in Galatians 3 where Paul says, Jesus, he who became a curse, became a curse for us. He hung on a tree. See, in that wrath of the Father that was destined for you, for me, for all of us, rightly deserved. God says, I'm going to turn that wrath away from you and I'm going to put it upon my son. We'll, we'll see this in Romans 3.25, that God made his own son a propitiation, a sacrifice for sins, which is the ultimate good news. The ultimate good news, church, is not that Jesus is helpful, not that he's positive, Not that he's encouraging, but the best news is that Jesus is life. Jesus laid his life down for us. Sinners right in the image of Romans 1, 18 and following. But sinners whom God has sent his own son to die for. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know this, Jesus? Are you discouraged when you look within? Don't stay there. Look within and then look to Christ. It's why we come each and every Sunday. It's why we celebrate the Lord's table each and every week. We never get past our need to remind ourselves of the body and the blood of Jesus broken for sinners like us. And this grace and mercy, no matter where you are, what you've done, maybe you haven't been in church in years or months, decades, God says, I've made a way for you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest in my gospel. Let's pray.